It is such a treat to be here tonight with Mati Friedman, or as I will call you the rest of the night, Maddie Friedman, <laughs> because Feel free. we're here in America, and maybe in Israel they call you Mati, but that's hard, you know? <laughs> um, this book, Spies of No Country, tells the little-known story of four Mizrahi Jews who went undercover in the Arab world in 1948 to, to spy for the not-yet-founded state of Israel. Um, and we'll get to all of that. It's an amazing story, and you guys can all buy the book right over there after. But let's let's start with with you. Um, how did you find this this story? Uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming. <laughs> it's so nice to be here at the 92nd Street Y. It's nice to be here in New York. I found the story like I like I found most of my stories by by mistake. I was writing another book entirely, a book called the Aleppo Codex, which is uh, which Susan just mentioned, which is about the most important copy of the Bible in Hebrew. And it's a pretty dirty story about an ancient manuscript and how it moved around. And um, it has a Brooklyn angle. Some of its missing pages show up in Flatbush. Someone gets murdered. I won't give you the whole uh, story, but I was hanging out with a, 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 an 80-year-old ex-Mossad guy, as one does. And he uh, said, you know, you should really meet my friend, uh, Itzhak Shoshan, who is an even older retired Mossad operative. And I wasn't sure why I was going to see this guy. But I've learned over many years as a reporter that if someone offers to introduce you to an old spy, <laughs> just go. You won't regret it. So I got into the car and drove down from Jerusalem to Batyam, which is this kind of sweaty suburb of Tel Aviv. Maybe some of you have been there. And I arrive at this kind of Soviet block of workers' apartments. And I get into this elevator, which is like an old Israeli elevator. It's the size of a telephone booth. And it took me up really slowly to the seventh floor. And on the seventh floor, the door of the apartment was open. And a guy was waiting for me. He was about, in my memory, he was about that tall. He might have been a bit taller. Uh, with a mustache and big ears and glasses. And um, he uh, escorted me into his kitchen, which was this 1960s Israeli kitchen. I still remember these lime green tiles on the walls of the kitchen, this tiny kind of formica table. And he sat down and he kind of walked very slowly over to the stove and brewed me coffee, black coffee, using a finjan, which is this long, handled tin pot, which is the way they used to make coffee in the Palmach, in the pre-state militia, which he had been in. Uh, he made me black coffee, and he sat me down, and he told me a story about the founding of the state of Israel that I had never heard before. And it was a story about a little unit called the Arab Section, which was made up of guys like Isaac, kind of street kids almost, kids from the Arab world who'd washed up in pre-state Israel and in British Mandate Palestine and who had found a very unique way to contribute to the national cause. And I went back to visit Isaac um, many times. This was in 2011, and he was nearing 90, and I wasn't sure how much longer I was, I was going to have him, and I just kept going back to record him more and more and more. And um, it took me a few years to figure out exactly what the story was, but after interviewing Isaac, the country of Israel s started to seem different to me. Based on the way he, he described the founding of the state, the current day state that I lived in began seeming different, and that's when I realized that this was an important story that had to be told somehow. So tell us a little bit about the Arab section. There's something, there's a word that they use to call, to, to, to refer to these men. It was like ones who l are like Arabs. What was that word? Right, right. Well, uh, are any of you watching Fauda or have you watched Fauda? 
Uh, that's yeah, that's not bad. Uh, more more people nodding than didn't nod. Um, if you are watching Fauda, then you know that the guys in Fauda, the agents in Fauda, who are for the three people who aren't watching it, um, um, kind of Israeli agents who can operate under Arab identities on the other side of enemy lines. There's a word for that job in Hebrew, and the word is anyone know? Mistarvin. Mistarvin. Um, he really watches. <laughs> um, um, the, the word mistarev is a very interesting word, and its roots in Israeli intelligence date to the time of the Arab section. And what the word means is one, literally, it can't be translated very easily into English, but it means ones who become like Arabs. There's a word in Hebrew for the act of becoming like an Arab. You can conjugate it. Mistarev, mistarvim, mistarevet, misuarav, histarvu. It's like a word in Hebrew, which is very, very strange. And that's the word that these guys used to describe what they were doing. They didn't want to call themselves spies because they thought the word spies was dishonorable. No one wanted to be a spy. And if you call them an agent, sochen in Hebrew, they don't like that either. What they uh, like to be known as is Mistarvim, and they call themselves Hamistarvim Alishonim, the first Mistarvim. And so, what was it that they were doing? How were they discovered? How were they brought on to be agents, even though they didn't call themselves that? And what were they trained to do? Well, they um, the whole operation is incredibly amateur. So, if you if what you're imagining is the Mossad, and it says now that the paper this is a new paperback, by the way, out. You know, just uh, two weeks ago. Now it's called Israel's Secret Agents at the Birth of the Mossad. That's a new subtitle for the book. And if you, if what you're, um, because the word Mossad is sexy and supposed to sell books, <laughs> well, we'll see if it works. Um, but the Mossad is something, you know, you imagine the Mossad, you think of some gleaming skyscraper with radi radar dishes on the top and highly sophisticated agents using cutting edge technology. So you have to forget all of that when you think of the Arab section who were about a dozen guys with very little training. They've been picked up on the street, more or less, on the fringes of the cities living in uh, different kibbutzim by um, the very first Israeli intelligence operatives before the 1948 war. So before the 1948 war, some in the Zionist leadership understand that a war is coming against the Arab world. And if you're going to fight a war against the Arab world, you need people who can cross the lines and deliver intelligence. And the Jews didn't have anything like that. So they put together this unit, which they called the Arab Sections. This is kind of a short version of a, of a longer and more interesting story. But they well, put everyone's going to buy the book after, so it's fine. Of Just course. give them a taste. I mean, everyone's already bought it, but we'll now <laughs> buy several more copies for relatives <laughs> and friends. With the new subtitle. With the new subtitle. Completely different book, by the way. Uh, <laughs> a new ending, but I won't reveal what it is. The, um, um, uh, the Arab section is uh, meant to produce people who can pass on the other side of, of the enemy line. So people who could walk from the Jewish part of Jerusalem into the Arab part of Jerusalem, change their identity, use a different name, um, chat people up, see what's going on, and then cross the lines back onto the Jewish side of the line and, and report. And this starts happening in earnest in 1947 as the, the war kind of approaches and then the, when war breaks out the arab section is thrown into the midst of it and it's basically the only effective intelligence tool that the jews have at that time um, 12 guys about 12 guys active at the beginning of the war they don't make salaries there's no money to pay them they don't own a radio israeli intelligence does not own a radio they do not own a camera they have to borrow a camera they have That's to my borrow a camera when they are sent to uh, photograph military installations on the border with syria it's from a guy they know it's not there's even a like guy from with a, a camera yeah. There's a guy with a camera, we even know his name, Aaron Tzilling. 
uh, he had a Minox and the Israeli intelligence, which wasn't called Israeli intelligence at the time, needed to borrow his camera. And these two agents are sent north. And according to the story, uh, which is one of those stories that's too good to really check, they're told um, if you, know, you go and do this dangerous mission, if you don't come back, that's okay but the camera better come back <laughs> or the ceiling is going to be really pissed off. So that's the kind of uh, operation it was. It was very, um, it was kind of a seat of the pants operation. Nothing that would even uh, come close to resembling the Mossad as it came to exist after the war. So there's a lot of wild capers, there's like suspenseful moments in the book. Where, can you give us an example of one of the operations that, that I, Isaac Itzhak and his, his sort of, his gang went on? Sure. I mean, there are, there are a few that they're, that they're proud of. Um, I, mean, I can start with one that happens right at the beginning of the war. War breaks out, and there are two, uh, two of these guys, two of them, Stavim, two of the ones who become like Arabs, uh, sent into Jaffa to see what's going on in Jaffa because the Jews are afraid that, that a riot is going to come out of Jaffa and attack Tel Aviv. And these two, uh, these two kids, they're really kids. They're uh, Jews from Iraq. Um, the, the Arab section, I guess we should say, is made up of kids from the Arab world, Jews from places like Iraq, Syria, Yemen, native Arabic speakers who uh, were kind of on the margins of the Zionist movement at the time. And these two kids from Iraq were using Arab identities. They were pretending to be Arab workers. Their cover was obviously completely inadequate. They're caught immediately by the Arab militia in Jaffa. And we have fascinating uh, tapped uh, telephone conversations between Arab militia members in Jaffa as they decide what to do with these guys. Who are these people? They seem off, but they speak perfect Arabic. They might be spies, but we're not sure. So they decide that they're going to test them. They're going to have them uh, do the ritual washing that a Muslim does before prayer. Any Muslim would know how to do the, uh, the ritual purification before prayer. It's called wudu. If you're a Muslim, you know how to do it. So they make them do it, and one of them can do it, and one of them can't. And they find their bodies. They're only, they're only identified, these two guys, uh, 50 years later. And they're shot, and they're buried in the dunes outside Jaffa. Um, and the, their fate only becomes clear much, uh, much, much later. So that's an example of an operation that didn't exactly go as planned. Of about a dozen uh, agents who are active in the Arab section at the beginning of the war, half of them die because they're not very good. They, there's no spy school. They're, <laughs> they're improvising, and there's no real plan, and there's uh, very little equipment, and a lot, of them, a lot of them don't make it. An example of an operation that does work uh, is uh, the instance that you probably remember involving the truck bomb in Haifa. There was a, a truck bomb being constructed by the Arab militia in Haifa in the very beginning of 1948. So the war is heating up. One of the main tactics being used by the sides was truck bombs or car bombs. They would drive them into the enemy area um, and, and, and detonate them. And the British were still in control. So the Jews didn't have an army. There's no IDF. It's very hard when you read this story or try to imagine the scene to erase everything you know. There is no Israeli army. There is no Israeli intelligence. The word Israel was never used. It's a completely, it, we kind of r um, retroactively project what we know onto those events. We know who's going to win. They didn't know who was going to win. They actually thought they were going to lose. So it's a completely different mindset. Um, but an Arab militia is constructing a truck bomb that's supposed to go off at a Jewish movie theater in Haifa called uh, Cinema Ora. In, in Haifa, the uh, very rudimentary intelligence apparatus gets word that this is going to happen. They know, uh, thanks to 
uh, Yitzhak Shoshan, the guy who I interviewed, who they, they know that this truck bomb is being disguised as a British ambulance. It's been painted like a British ambulance and it's under construction in a garage in the lower city of Haifa. And they have to figure out what to do about it because they don't have an army to send against it and they don't have an air force to bomb it. What can they do? They, all that they can think of doing is send in their own truck bomb to take out the first truck bomb. And what happens, what uh, kind of, uh, excuse me, what takes place over the next few days is um, almost a comedy of errors as they try to build their well, own bomb. They have bomb. to find a truck first, right? They have to find a <laughs> car, but no one has a car, and it's supposed to drive it, but it doesn't know how to drive. And they build a bomb, but they, one of the guys knows how to build a bomb because the British had taught some of the uh, operatives how to build bombs, and this kind of bomb required a certain kind of condom that it has acid in it and the acid uh, dissolves the condom and then the acid touches the fuse and the fuse blows. so they had it all under control and it was Shabbat it was Shabbat the pharmacies were closed they couldn't get the condoms eventually they, got, they get the condoms and according to the story again you don't want to check these stories the pharmacist is like can't you just wait and, and they say, no, we need to do this right now. And they use so many of these condoms trying to make the bomb, they can't quite get it right, that they switch to a different kind of condom, which changes the time that it takes to detonate, which ends up changing their plan. I won't give away the whole uh, story, but, um, but in the end, uh, Isaac, Itzhak, the one who I, who I met, and, and the most daring of his friends, a guy named Yakuba, who's kind of a very brave and very kind of a rambunctious character, they bluff their way into Arab Haifa. They bluff their way through three Arab checkpoints driving um, a bomb in, uh, in an Oldsmobile, and they park it in the garage, and they blow the garage to smithereens and kill some people who were involved in building the truck bomb, and they kill people who weren't involved and building the truck bomb and that story comes back to haunt Isaac later in the book. So you write um, about these men, who they are, has something important to tell us about the country they helped create. What do you mean by that? If you, if you grew up in a North American Jewish community, as I imagine many of people in this room did, you grew up in Toronto, uh, then you grew up with a very European story about Israel. Uh, Theodore Herzl and Vienna and pogroms and socialism, right? The kibbutz idea and the Shoah that looms very large. And that's still very much the Israel story that we have today. It's the official story of the country. And I moved to Israel in 1995 when I was 17 and pretty quickly had to face the fact that that story does not explain the country because the country doesn't really correspond to that story and there are many reasons that that's the case but one of the main reasons the main reason in my opinion is that of the Jewish population of Israel at least half comes from the Islamic world and not from Europe at all so at least half of the Jews in, in Israel have very little to do with Herzl and pogroms and the kibbutz and, and the Holocaust they have another Jewish story which is incredible and old and complicated uh, and it's just not the story and yet we have this official story about Israel and we have the actual country of Israel and there's a pretty big disconnect between them and I increasingly have come to feel that the that, that side of the Israeli experience which is so important to the daily life of the country I mean, you can't if you try to understand Israel as a European country or as an extension of the American Jewish world you'll, you won't get anywhere just you know to give an obvious example if you go to, to Israel and you're looking for Jewish food you're not going to find any Jewish food, as, no New Yorkers, as New Yorkers define Jewish food. Um, you, today you can find bagels, but it's recent. Bagels are recent in Israel. And I just asked my, my son, I have a 13-year-old, like, what are bagels? He, he just thinks of, of it as American food. He doesn't think it's Jewish food. He just thinks it's food that came from America. Um, and, you know, the whole 
cuisine of Eastern Europe is really hard to find in Israel, but if you go into a supermarket, what you're going to find is you're going to find couscous and hummus and lots of eggplant stuff and the whole kind of pantry of, uh, of the Levant. If you turn on an Israeli uh, uh, pop station or our local version of MTV, you're going to hear a kind of music called Mizrahi. That's, it means Eastern in Hebrew. That's a dominant pop form in Israel. It's a bit discordant to Western ears because it's so different. But it's Middle Eastern pop music in Hebrew with a lot of Greek in it and uh, some Western influences. I just wrote an article, a piece that came out in the Times this weekend about the greatest pop star of the moment in that genre, who's actually an Arab singer named Nasreen, who converted to Judaism. Long story that would take us off path, but that um, is another uh, um, kind of symptom of the Middle Easternness of Israeli society. Our politics are very Middle Eastern. Our religion, the way Israelis practice Judaism, is not like Americans practice Judaism. You won't find much of a conservative movement or a reform movement in Israel. Most Israelis, if you look at polling information, are traditional. They're traditional, meaning that they might go to shul, they might not go to shul, they might say kiddush on Friday night and then go to a soccer game. That's traditional and that's very Middle Eastern. That's a Middle Eastern way of practicing Judaism. So we have this Middle Eastern country and we have this European story and it increasingly, they, they increasingly rankle in my, in my mind. And I decided that what we needed was a story about the founding of the state of Israel in which the main characters were not European. I wanted to write a story about 1948 in which there were no Ashkenazim. And, uh, there really are none in this book. There are basically it's none in remarkable. this book. There are a few who could have been in there, but I left them out <laughs> just to <laughs> keep it clean, you know what I mean? Um, and I thought that that would be an interesting thought exercise if, if you understand that at least half of Israeli Jews are the grandchildren or great-grandchildren or children of these four guys who were Jews and Arabs. Were they pretending to be Arabs? It's unclear exactly what the pretense was. They knew Arabic. They didn't have to be taught Arabic. So they're in this tent being trained to be Mista'arvim. But they don't need to be trained because they come from Syria <laughs> and Iraq. I mean, they have to be taught Islam, so they're not Muslims. That, that's for sure. But is the pretense that they're, pre are they pretending to be Arabs? Or are they pretending not to be Arabs, pretending to be Arabs? Like what's going on exactly? And that's one of the interesting things in this story. So there's a term, it's called Ashkenormativity, normativity. I and it heard. means, <laughs> um, it's basically the assumption that all, like you said, all Jewish food is bagels and blintzes, all Jews come from Eastern Europe, all Jews are essentially white passing in, in the cultures that they, they're a part of. This book really pushes against that notion. And, and was that something that was really, really important for you as you took on this project? Yes. Um, first of all, do you find yourself being intimidated by, <laughs> by this Mr. very Warburg? imposing yes. dude who's looking? Yeah, be out careful at this? what you say. I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> I don't know if he'd be into this whole anti Ashkenormativity <laughs> bank that we're on. I bet he was pretty Ashkenormative himself. Um, uh, yes, although I didn't know that word when I started writing the book. And it's, it's a just, great word. It's a, it is a, it's a great Amazing. word. What I was trying to do is just accurately reflect the society that I live in, which I think people unfortunately don't do very much, especially people writing about Israel in English. They seem stuck in old stories. So people still love Golda, and they still love David Ben-Gurion, and the Entebbe raid. Everyone wants to hear about the Entebbe raid again. And so do I. I mean, this, those are great those are great stories, but they don't explain the country. So I think we have to kind of move on and grapple with the society that's been created. What's been created in, in Israel is not a society of Eastern European Jews who were dropped by mistake into the Middle East. What's happened in Israel is that um, we have a Middle Eastern Jewish country. 
it's a country of increasingly Middle Eastern Jews. Even the Jews who came from Eastern Europe, whose parents or grandparents came from Eastern Europe, have become more Middle Easternized as generations have gone by in the Middle East, and that makes perfect sense. And that's one of the main drivers, I think, of the gap between the community here and the community there, the American Jewish community or the North American Jewish community, I should say, just so I don't antagonize any Canadians or my own or my own internal Canadian. Um, the, the communities in North America are almost in, are, are almost entirely Ashkenazi. There's a small um, um, component with roots in the Islamic world, but it's quite small. The Israeli Jewish community is at least half Mizrahi, at least half of people coming from the Islamic world, and even the Ashkenazim in Israel are becoming Middle Easternized, and that's very different. And that's one reason that it that communication is increasingly hard. So a lot of the time, people will kind of express that in different ways and talk about BB and you know right wing politics and and that kind of stuff, which is you know true to some extent for sure, but that's not what's really going on. That's a symptom of something that's going on. What's really going on is that we have two very different Jewish worlds which are becoming more and more different as they're formed in completely different political and cultural contexts. And I hope that a book like this might help bridge that a bit. If we can name the difference, yes. <laughs> um, if we can name the difference, and that might help, you know, to, in order to understand Israel, uh, American readers really have to make a leap to the Middle East. It's not about gold anymore. Um, as much as I love Goldine, it's not about Warsaw, it's not about the Holocaust, and it's about a different world that's very foreign to North Americans, and if you want to understand Israel in 2020, you have to think a lot less about Warsaw or about Lodz and a lot more about Kurdistan and Aleppo, and um, this, I, I hope, is a small step in that direction. You share a really interesting insight in this book along these lines. You write, I'm going to read to you from your book now. Double identity has always been part of life for Jews, members of a minority often outwardly indistinguishable from the majority. You wonder how much to hide or show at different times, how the sides of you fit, and whether it's possible to abandon one side altogether. You mentioned Queen Esther and Moses in Egypt. But in this story, these were Jews who didn't look like other Jews, not Jews who didn't, who didn't fit in in their wider non-Jewish society. So I'm, I'm, and their skills were being called on precisely for that reason, because they were the other. And so I guess I'm wondering, what does it mean to be this in the Jewish state, which is what we would imagine in its, in its foundational sta its status, right, would be a place where all Jews would be accepted. So what does that mean to be a double life living Jew within a Jewish world. Yes, it's such a, I, I didn't even expect to get there when I started writing the book. I thought it was pretty straightforward. And then I realized that there's so many layers of identity confusion in, in, in the book, because who, who are these? Who are these guys? And you know, they're um, very uh, um, you know, quickly in the 1948 war, they're dispatched into Lebanon, where they pose as Palestinian refugees. That's how Israeli intelligence gets its foothold in the Arab world. So these guys are Jewish refugees from Arab countries pretending to be Arab refugees from a Jewish country. And there's so much going on in their story that you don't even know uh, where to start. Um, the idea of double identity is so rooted in the, in the Jewish story that, I mean, it does go back to the Bible. Some, some of our greatest stories are, are this story, basically, and other, uh, you know, with the details changed. So, you know, you have a guy named uh, Joseph who gets sold into slavery by his brothers and he ends up in, in Egypt and he becomes so Egyptified, he becomes, he becomes like an Egyptian, as they would say, um, that, he's, that, that his own brothers don't recognize him when they show up and he has an Egyptian name. Does anyone rem remember his name? He has, he has an Egyptian name, he's an Egyptian. His name's Sofnat Paneach. He has an Egyptian identity and he's Egyptian. And we are to understand as the reader of the Bible that he has been placed there in, by the divine spy master as part of an operational plan that is going to save the Jews eventually. Um, same thing with Esther. He Esther also didn't have a, a camera. 
And he also yeah, went yeah. in with nothing. He had to borrow it. That's right. <laughs> to borrow a to chisel, to <laughs> chisel. Um, to text. Uh, Est <laughs> Esther, same, same thing, right? Esther is a Persian name. She was Persianified. Uh, she also had a Hebrew name, Hadassah, but Esther is a Persian name. And she is Persian enough that she can function in the royal palace, having been placed there by the spy in charge, and then she's in place when needed. So this is, and there are, there are other stories like this. Uh, these guys end up, end up doing something similar, and the people who figure it out are actually not the early commanders of the Palmach, it's the British Special Operations Executive. They're running the show in 1941. 1941, there's a panic in Palestine because it looks like the Nazis are about to conquer Palestine. And everyone freaks out. The Jews freak out. The British freak out. Everyone, everyone freaks out. And one thing that the British do is that they start setting up sabotage units using what they have. And they realize that um, you know, passing as another nationality is very, very hard. It works in spy movies, but it doesn't really work in real life. It's very hard to pretend to be some, someone else. You know, even if I took, even if I... You know, I'm an English speaker, and I was born and raised in North America. If I went down to Louisiana for a couple of weeks and tried to pass as someone from Louisiana, there there would be something about me that the locals would, <laughs> would right? Something would give me away. There'd be some little detail. You, it's and that, let alone you know other languages. So th it's really hard to do. And the British realized that with the Jews in Palestine, they have a treasure because here are people who can pass for anything for dozens of cultures from Bukhara to, you know, Vancouver. And they can be Germans, for example. They have Jews who can be Germans. So they set up something called the German section, which is trained in Wehrmacht uniforms. They're trained to sing Nazi songs. Uh, they're trained in a cave outside of kibbutz. And the idea is that the German section is going to remain behind after a Nazi occupation in Palestine, and they're going to serve as almost suicide um, saboteurs after the Nazi invasion, the German section, German Jews who are going to be Germans. And they also realize that there's a small population, it's a small population at the time among the Jews in Palestine who are 90% Ashkenazi at that time, but they realize that on the fringes of Zionist society are these people who seem like Arabs. And they're not really being absorbed into the Zionist movement, they're kind of treated with disdain because they don't come from the world of Yiddish, they don't come from the world of Europe, uh, they seem like Arabs. They seem a bit too much like Arabs. And that was a social problem for them, but the British realized that for intelligence, it's exactly what you need. So they set up something called the Arab section, and they start picking up these guys and training them to be spies. So the idea actually begins with, with the British, and they just realize that the Jews and this double identity thing um, are a, a godsend to intelligence. And precisely at the same time, it's one of these great ironies, that identity, that characteristic double identity is what's getting the Jewish population of Europe murdered because that double identity has always been a huge problem for Jews. Who are you? Who are you? Why do you look like us? You, you think you're us because you're not us. And it turned out that German Jews actually started to think that they were Germans and a lot of Germans did not want to allow that to happen. So what do you do? You tag the people with badges and you put them in a different part of town and eventually you murder them. And this was going on at the exact same time. This is all happening in the 40s. So double identity was getting the Jews into some pretty serious trouble and it was also being used as a weapon uh, by the you know, movement that was dedicated to Jewish national rebirth. So you mentioned Fauda, but I wanna talk about the HBO series, The Spy. Uh, you wrote a really nice essay in Mosaic Magazine about that show, which I don't know who saw that. It was Sasha Baron Cohen as Ellie Cohen, mm -hmm. who was the Egyptian-born Jew, who was this really uh, incredible 
spy with this amazing story. So this was in the 1960s. So can you tell us what you thought of that show, that portrayal, and how he fits into this story? Ellie Korn is such a great, how many people saw it? I just didn't catch, but so fair, so oh good. wow, yeah, yeah. It was, I went in with such low expectations uh -huh. and I thought it was great. Um, I thought Sacha Baron Cohen, when I first heard that Sacha Baron Cohen, but we, but we got so, so much excited. to say. <laughs> we got so much to say. I'll try to slow it down. Uh, I'll try. I'll try. It's hard. I'll, I'll definitely try to slow it down a bit, but not, but not too much. Um, um, Eli Cohen was uh, Israel's most famous spy. He was the most famous spy because he was caught. So it, it, he's not necessarily Israel's best spy. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I don't mean that wasn't meant yeah. to be like a, you know, like Trump said about yeah. McCain. I like the kind of hero. That's not what I was trying to say. I'm just saying there were other uh, successful intelligence operations that we have not, never heard of um, because the spies came home. One of them actually was run by um, uh, this guy, Gamliel Cohen. You can't see him, but he's here in the picture, who's one of my four sp spies from this story after this uh, operation is over, after the 48 war is over, Gamliel goes back to the Arab world and spends many, many years under an assumed identity, Yusuf al-Hamid. He penetrates the highest levels of the Arab League. Uh, he is so deep undercover that his daughter, who I met, is born with an Arabic name. She's given the name uh, uh, Samira. And then when they come back to Israel, she, and she doesn't know she's Jewish, and when she comes back to Israel when she's two, they, they get rid of the Sa so she can be Mila. She was a Hebrew name. So I, may, I know Mila, but she was born under the name Samira, um, Samira al-Hamid. And, and he is not well known because he made it home. But the, the series, I thought, I mean, it was, a, it was a bit cheesy. I mean, it, it was, you know, there, some of the historical details were off. Uh, but I thought that Sacha Baron Cohen actually really sold the character. He helped me understand something about Eli Cohen, which I had never understood. I always imagined him as kind of quiet and sophisticated. But he played him as this gregarious character who was always very quick with a bribe, you know, quick with a joke, biggest guy in the room. And of course, that makes perfect sense. He w that's how you make friends. Um, another thing that I did like about that series was that they, in a, in a, in a way that I think might have been a bit broad, but it was still there, they, they attacked the the heart of the matter. What is the heart of the matter? Eli Cohen, in, in an early scene in the, in the series, Eli Cohen is, and his wife, Nadia, who's one of the, who's also wonderfully acted, and she's one of the heroes of the show, they're at a party. And it's a party at, a like a pool party at the home. It's supposed to be like the upper class Ashkenazim, and they have a pool, and it's, no such home existed in, in Israel in 1960. <laughs> it's, they're all wearing like 1970s clothes with like pointy collars. Like Don't 10 years too dress. early. Okay, it doesn't matter. It <laughs> doesn't matter. The point is, wealthy Ashkenazim and Eli Cohen and his wife Nadia, who are there, and um, Eli, Eli is mistaken for a waiter. The host says, Can you get me a drink? And, you know, and of course, uh, um, Eli's insulted. And, and at home with Nadia afterwards, he says, You know what? They, you know, what these people see when they look at me, they see an Arab. They, they you know, I'm Jewish, but they think I'm an, they think I'm an Arab. And that is the key to so much of this, because being like an Arab, being mista'arev, uh, being someone who is so like an Arab that you are indistinguishable from an Arab, in Israeli society at this time is a disability to be overcome. It's not good. It puts you on the, bo on the bottom rungs of the society. It's only good if you're a spy. So if you can turn that disability into a weapon uh, that can serve the nation, 
then you can buy yourself a, a ticket into the Holy of Holies of the state at the time, which is the intelligence services, the Arab section, the Palmach. But for most people who came to Israel speaking Arabic, um, life wasn't like that. And only now is Israeli society really reckoning with years of discrimination and disdain uh, directed at people who came to Israel from the Islamic world. And it still plays out in all kinds of ways. For example, in elections, uh, where the base of the Likud party is and always has been, not the settler movement, which is what you might think if you read Western press coverage, the base of the Likud party has always been Jews from the Islamic world. And that has many reasons, but one reason is that the labor Zionist establishment, who everyone loves, Golda and David Ben-Gurion, all those guys, treated these people with disdain when they came and expected them to become secular. People from the Middle East were not into being secular. They wanted them to be socialists. They wanted nothing to do with socialism. Um, and they uh, were kind of disdained by the left, but embraced by the right under Menachem Begin. And that established a voting pattern that we just saw today in, in, in the election. And there's more going on with that, but it's definitely something that, uh, if you don't understand that, then Israeli society makes very little sense. But it sounds like you didn't fully understand this until just a few years ago when you happened upon someone who told you to meet up with a spy and you know not to say no to that. I mean, how do you reconcile that as, as a sort of educated and thoughtful and curious member of Israeli society? Is these, are these stories still hidden? Yes, I mean, I, and it's absolutely true what you said. I lived in, I've been in Israel since 95, so that's almost, that's almost 10 years. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm almost 30, it's hard to believe. <laughs> uh, so I've been in Israel for a long time, but you can function as a journalist within the realm of the stories that journalists usually cover. And, and I did that for a long time, and I, I lived on a kibbutz for a while, so I was very much part of that Israel, and that Israel exists. It's not like it doesn't exist. And I think I just accepted what most people accept, which is that this stuff is something else. It's some other story. So the story of Israel is the kibbutz, and the story of Israel is you know socialism and a nation reborn in its ancestral homeland. And also there's you know Yemenite food and some strange music. And and it took me a while to realize that 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 actually the whole story is different. That if half or more of the Jews in Israel come from the Islamic world, then that raises a real question about who the main character in the story is. And we can tell a story about. I mean, this is how the story is told, right? Zionism is a European movement, creates a state of Israel, and then after the creation of the state, Jews come from the Islamic world and join the European story, which is Zionism. That's basically how we still tell the story. You can tell different stories. You can tell a story about Jews who have always been in the Middle East for thousands and thousands of years. There were a million Jews native to the Islamic world in the 1940s. Baghdad in the 1940s was one-third Jewish, and every major Arab city had a Jewish quarter. So what happens in the 1940s is that those Jewish quarters move around and kind of reestablish themselves in a place that is now called Israel. And the Jews of the Islamic world are joined by the remnants of the Jews of Europe. And that is, the Jews of Europe insert themselves into the story of the Jews of the Islamic world and are becoming Jews in the Islamic world. <laughs> That's also true. And if you look at the story that way, all kinds of aspects of Israeli life start making sense country starts making more sense, in my opinion, if you see it that way. Um, and that's what I guess this is an attempt to do. Like all of my books, it started out as an attempt to educate myself. I, I was trying to figure this out. I was trying to put it in words, and I was trying to kind of illustrate it with a story that would help me transmit it. But um, it's definitely something that it took me years to figure out. And so what about today? I mean, not today, specifically the election, but you know, are the tides changing? Is Israel doing a better job at sort of re-embracing, reclaiming this Mizrahi, the Sephardi heritage, and, and, and those people today in society? 
the, the one word answer is yes, uh, but it's very complicated. And the, the fault lines in Israeli society are, are deep and, and visible to this day. If you go to a university sociology department, you're probably going to find a lot of Ashkenazim. And if you go to an unemployment office in a town in the south, you're going to see people who came from Algeria and, and Tunisia and Morocco. Um, and that's painful and that's real. And the, the, the numbers show that, by the way. I'm not just making it up. Polling numbers show that. The gaps are narrowing, but they still... They still exist. It's a fact of life in, in the country. It is changing. More uh, high-ranking political figures uh, come from, uh, you know, have roots in the Islamic world. Um, a good example is the justice minister. There are many examples, but the justice minister in the government that we don't have or do have, I can never remember yeah. if we have one or don't have one, but the justice minister in our kind of fictitious government um, is a guy named Amir Ohana, who I also profiled for the Times, and he comes from a Moroccan family, and he very much brings that uh, political attitude, that religious attitude to his role. He's also, by the way, gay and out of the closet and married to a guy, and they have two kids who were born to a surrogate mother in Klamath Falls, Oregon, just to, uh, you know, fully <laughs> scramble the, the picture of, he's a he's super right-winger, right? He's an ultra-hawk, but, because in Israel that's not, that isn't, uh, that's fine, all that fits together. Um, so that's happening in the political system, in, in the culture, definitely, the culture minister uh, over the past couple years has been a very kind of outspoken woman named Miri Regev, who people love to hate, but she is um, from North African uh, stock, and she likes Middle Eastern music, and she, you know, is waging a war against the cultural elites, the people who think that symphonies are culture and opera is culture, and she has a different idea of what culture is. So it, the fight is coming out often in a very ugly way, um, kind of an that when people in Israel speak an anti-elitist language, often what's going on is an ethnic discussion. It's this discussion. Because who are the elites and who, who's, who's the street, whose culture has been trampled and who has done the trampling. Uh, so there's also, of course, an elitist discussion in America, but it's, it's a different one. In Israel, it's, it's basically this. So it's another reason to kind of understand what this is, because a lot of what um, seems to be uh, arguments that seem to be about other things in Israel are often about this. Arguments about religion and religious coercion are often about this. Arguments about culture, arguments about the role of the Supreme Court, um, arguments about the press, who's in the press. A lot of it's deeply related to ethnicity and the way this has played out in Israel since 1948. So on that note, let's expand our discussion. Um, if you guys want to ask questions to Mati, I'm sure you have them. Just, I don't know, raise your hand. Yes. Um, so in your approach, you talk about the difference in between side topics between genre and genre. I'll repeat the question. I'll repeat the question. And um, I was just curious if you feel that you need to deconstruct, what was his opinion on which one better than the other? Shall I, shall I repeat it? Yeah. In the book, there are, there are four characters. One is Yitzchak, who I interviewed, and two of the other characters, Gamliel and Yakuba, had very different ideas about what espionage was. And it plays out in Beirut. They're basically stranded in Beirut for a while. They have no communication with, with Israel. They're sent in April 1948 before there's a state. So when they go, they don't know that there is going to be a state. And in fact, they don't hear that there is a state because they don't have a radio because they still don't own a radio. And all they have are the Arabic newspapers, which are declaring that the state has been destroyed by the Arab armies. And that's how they spend the summer of 1948. But quickly afterwards, Gamliel and Yakuba start having a fight about what intelligence is or what, what the job of a spy is. 
a Gamliel thinks his job is to collect information and form a picture of the enemy that can help the people back in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, you know, uh, create policy. Yakuba wants to blow things up because that's what he thinks. <laughs> he thinks of himself as a soldier. These guys have never been trained to be like long-term penetration spies. He's a palmachnik. He is a warrior. And, you know, just as the Arabs brought the war to the Jews, he is going to bring it to the Arabs and he's going to blow up the oil refinery in Tripoli. That was his plan. Biggest uh, refinery in the Middle East at the time, and he was going to take it out. There was a whole plan, and they wouldn't let him. And um, 50 years later, we have transcripts of, uh, of discussions where the guys meet 50 years later. 50 years later, Yakub is still angry <laughs> that they wouldn't let him take out the stupid refinery. And Gamliel is still furious at Yakuba for his irresponsibility and his crazy schemes that could have lit the whole Middle East on fire. It's, it's hilarious. They're both almost 80. Um, and they hated each other all their lives because of the argument that they had in, uh, in Beirut. Yitzhak, I think, took a more, he, was, he kind of stood back from it a bit. My sense is that he was more on the Gamliel side than on the, on the Yakuba side, but um, he, um, he could kind of laugh at it with the, you know, with the benefit of, of hindsight. But he's a more chilled out character. I think he was mainly into not dying. That's my sense of where his uh, strategic goals were. <laughs> So from this Greg killed Montreal spy, how did how did he, Israel Mossad become this elite intelligence agency? Who led it, and how did it, how was it become what it is today? Right. So um, um, we, we you guys have five or seven hours for us. <laughs> you, you, there's nothing going on in New York tonight, so we can definitely uh, spell all that out. Um, the, the Arab section is left in Beirut until the spring of 1950. So the Palmach, which is this pre-state militia, this basically uh, Soviet uh, hard-left militia, is dismantled in 1948 because it poses a danger to the state. And Grin understands that you can't have armed socialists who are going to you know, serve the Soviet Union. So he takes apart the Palmach, except for one part of the Palmach, which isn't around to be taken apart, and that's the Arab section there in Beirut. So the Arab section is the last part of the Palmach to be dismantled, and that happens in the spring of 1950. The guys are pulled out in rubber dinghies, and um, Itzhak and his friends are brought back to Haifa, brought back to Israel, but they've never been to Israel. Mm. It's the first time they've ever been there because when they left, it didn't exist. So they're brought back to a completely different reality. He comes back to Haifa, but it's not the same Haifa. It's a different place. And he's, he expects to be greeted by people from the Palmach, but there is no Palmach. Everything's changed. And when you speak to him, you get the impression that he has never recovered from that, from just stepping onto the dock with no one there to meet him and everything had, everything had changed. It's quite, uh, it's, it's quite touching. Uh, the, uh, at the same time, the country was um, kind of building orderly intelligence services because before the state, it was just chaos. There was no hierarchy. Everyone was doing whatever they wanted to do. That was part of the problem with Yakuba. Like, he didn't believe in orders, so they would say, Yakuba, don't blow up the refinery. And he'd be like, ah, who, are, who the hell are you? you know, that was the Palmasta. But that couldn't obviously continue into the state. So they start building an intelligence apparatus. And eventually, first there's just military intelligence, then it gets split, and then you have military intelligence. Uh, and the, you have the Mossad, which is external intelligence. That's the way it, it, it works today. And an organization called the Shin Bet or the Shabak, Shirut Bitachon Klali, that does internal intelligence. Uh, the Mossad very quickly picks up most of these guys because they're you know, experienced and they know what they're doing. Um, so most of the characters in the book, at least those who survive, make their way into the Mossad and have long and colorful careers in, in the Mossad. The Mossad is famous, at least in the public 
mine uh, for being kind of, you know, for technical prowess and daring and kind of operational uh, daring do. The real secret of the Mossad's success is that the country was blessed with hundreds of thousands of people who could pass for the enemy. If you have a war with the Arab world, and unfortunately we did and still do, then it is very useful to have hundreds of thousands of people who can be mista'arvin, uh, which is something that you can't really train. They need to just exist. So in the early years of the state, the Mossad is full of these guys who are pretending to be Arabs or pretending to be pretending to be Arabs. And that's very, very important. And once that generation dies out, it makes life a lot harder for the Mossad because the Zionist idea was always to eliminate double identity. Right, those identities that we were talking about where you could be a German Jew, an, you know, a Polish Jew, a Persian Jew, Zionism did American Jew. Zionism was not into that. The idea of Zionism was to create a new Jew, which we would now call Israeli. And the Israeli speaks one language, Ivrit. And you're not supposed to speak Yiddish and you're definitely not supposed to speak Arabic. So within one generation, it's gone. And the children of Yitzhak and the children of Gamliel, there are Israelis. They've lost it. And um, that's great, I guess, for Zionism, maybe. But it's uh, bad for the spies. Yes? So I was wondering, you were talking about how the British fell with the Arabs. Did they also have a Jewish section among the Arabs living It's a great question. The answer is no. Wait, will you the, repeat the question? Oh, the question is, did they, the, the British set up the German section? They set up the Arab section? Did they set up a Jewish section <laughs> to spy on, on Jews? At, the, at this time, in they did use Jewish informers, by the way, the British. But at this time, in 1941, the British are not concerned uh, with Jewish uh, uh, insurrection because the British understand that there is no people more committed to the defeat of Nazism than the Jews. So what they have is a group of people who can pass for a million things who are completely dedicated to the cause. And that is very, very useful. So they use the Jews against the Germans. When they set up the, the Arab section, it's not meant to be used against Arabs. Uh, because that war was far away and no one could really imagine it. It was supposed to be sent across enemy lines into the parts of the Arab world that were controlled by the Nazis, uh, particularly um, Syria, which was controlled by Vichy. Uh, so the first mistarvim of the Arab section are sent across Nazi lines. And that only later does it become a tool to be used against Arabs. Um, and they never uh, did anything um, like that against the Jews, the, the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, they were a, a kind of a, if you've ever read about them, they were kind of a, they were cowboys. They were people who'd been plucked from Oxford and Cambridge, and there were these wild British characters that they don't, they don't make anymore. They retired that, <laughs> that assembly line. But people who spoke Greek, and, um, and they were parachuted all over the Mediterranean, and they were, they were concerned only with winning the war. They weren't worried about colonial administration after the war. So the British army in Palestine says, do not arm these people. Do not arm or train the Jews. Because as soon as this war is over, that training <laughs> and those weapons are going to be turned against the British, which of course was 100% true. But the SOE guys didn't care because they only cared about the war. And they knew they'd be gone by the end of the war. So the SOE called the Jews in Palestine the Friends. That's what they were called. That was their code name, the Friends. The Jews were completely loyal and could be trained and could be trusted to do anything. And they did. And it only falls apart after the war is won when the British and the Jews are at loggerheads again about what's supposed to happen in Palestine. Yes. Um, I wanted to give you credit for <coughs> focusing on Don't let me stop you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the Mizrahi uh, side of Israel, uh, you know, I follow you on Twitter. I've read all your op-eds. I've read all your books. 
This is the best question ever. Um, well, th that's true to some extent, and maybe uh, untrue in others. There are units in the Israeli army which have traditionally been kind of ethnically identified. For example, Golani has traditionally been a Mizrahi unit, and the Nachal, where I served, and so did Gilad, who's sitting in the second row. Um, didn't mean to call you out, Gilad, but Gilad. For being Ashkenazi. For being Ashkenazi. <laughs> the Nachal is an Ashkenazi unit. The paratroopers were traditionally Ashkenazi, while Givati was traditionally. So there, that is true. But in the army, there is a lot of mixing. And my unit was was mixed. And um, you know, there have been chiefs of staff of uh, of, um, uh, of uh, Mizrahi extraction. Uh, Shaul Mufaz being a good uh, good example. Gabi Ashkenazi, whose name is Ashkenazi, but he's actually not Ashkenazi. So there, the ar there has there has been uh, there has been mixing in in the army. But it, that the narrative does. Persist and uh, and I think that there's there's two kind of two people are two sides are to blame for the persistence of this idea of a white Israel or a, a European Israel. One of the sides is um, is the Arab world. The Arab world ha likes the idea that Israel is a colonial implant in the Arab world because that is a politically wise tactic. If you can make Euro Europe and the West feel guilty for creating the state of Israel, then you've scored points, right? Why are we paying for, for your Holocaust? You actually see that in a very blunt way on signs sometimes. Um, you know, you did the Holocaust and we're paying for it. And if you don't know anything about Israel, that kind of makes sense. You know, you say, yeah. Um, and what um, isn't in that equation is the fact that there were one million Jews who were native to the Islamic world in the 1940s. And every Arab city had a Jewish quarter. If you go to Cairo, you walk around downtown Cairo today, and I have several times, there's a whole part of downtown Cairo, which is called Harat al-Yahud, the Jewish quarter. Uh, it's empty, there are no Jews in it anymore, but they still call it the Jewish quarter. Where'd everyone go? Like, where are all the Jews? Who, who owns the property? What, what happened there? You go to Morocco. There are a quarter of a million Jews in Morocco, like within the lifetime of my dad. Where is, where is everybody? Where are all the Jews of Yemen? Where, where, did, everyone, where did everyone go? Um, and the answer is that the Jews left, and in many cases were pushed out, ha, um, had their property seized, and the memory of them erased. And these people became Israelis, most of them. And, and that means that the Israelis are not crusaders or colonial interlo interlopers from Europe. The Israelis are actually Yossi, your neighbor from Baghdad, whose store you stole. And that is much less comfortable for the Arab world. So they would like to 
create an image of Israel as a colonial interloper. There's an amazing um, example of this in Cairo. If you go to the war memorial in Cairo, the memorial to the October War, which is the greatest moment in Egyptian military history, which is the moment when the Egyptian army crosses the Suez Canal on Yom Kippur, 1973. And it's this wild socialist realism mural that I think it was painted by North Koreans or something. And it, it, uh, I'm serious, and it, it shows you know valiant Egyptian troops forging across the Suez Canal and flags and, and, and pathetic Israelis surrendering, you know, raising their hands and begging for mercy, stuff like that. And if you look at the Israelis, you'll see that all of the Israelis are blonde. And that's very interesting because if you've ever seen an Israeli military unit, you might have noticed that not all of the Israelis are blonde. In fact, a lot of the Israeli soldiers you'll see kind of look like Egyptians. And in fact, um, a certain number of the Israeli soldiers on the Suez Canal in 1973 were Egyptians. But that's very complicated if you're Egyptian, so you better make everyone blonde. The other side of it is, the, is that we always wanted to be blonde. Jews always wanted to be blonde because they'd spent centuries you know, being treated as swarthy oriental foreigners in Europe and they wanted to be blonde. So if you look at the early propaganda posters from the JNF or whatever, you'll see that it's a blonde chalutz, you know, hoeing the field in the day and listening to Beethoven at night. And that was a big part of the, it was never true, never true, but that was a big part of what we thought we were doing. We were becoming European, we were becoming blonde and that and that, those two powerful narratives together have created a situation where people forget that it's not true. And you have writers who can be in Israel and look out their window and describe a country that does not exist. The country, that country has never existed. Israel's a Middle Eastern country more than it is anything else. And I think we need to kind of wrap our heads around that pretty urgently. All right, one last question. So the conversation about um, the disparity between Ashkenazi and Jews uh, being more in Mizrahi, um, does the, the influx of the Ethiopian Right, there's always someone. Uh, I'm just wondering if, if the numbers are strong enough that it does, because I know that there is an issue just like there is here. Sure. I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a skit about this from the early years of Israeli television where you have, with starring Arik Einstein, Israelis know it because it's a classic skit, where it's two guys on, on a dock in Tel Aviv and they're mocking the most recently arrived immigrants. I think it's like Romanians. <laughs> and then it's, the scene changes, and then it's the two Romanian guys saying, ugh, these Hungarians, they just, and then it's the, then it's the Hungarians saying, these Moroccans are just, and the Moroccans are like, ugh, the Yemenites are. So there's this, there is that kind of dynamic. Um, and it's unfortunate that humans can't get their act together. You know, that's, that's one of our greatest failings. Um, and people need to look down on someone, and people need to feel superior to someone, and that has certainly happened to Jews who came from uh, the Middle East and North Africa, and it happens among the communities of the Middle East and North Africa. If you think that's one thing, it's not. There's a hierarchy there, too, um, and, and it certainly happened to the Ethiopians or with the, the more recent migrants from places like Eritrea who are lo even lower on the hierarchy, um, and it's painful to see. It's painful to see, unfortunately. it's a, it's the way a human society works, and you can see it in New York City, and you can see it in Toronto, and you can see it anywhere. It's not a problem that's specific to Israel, but of course, as someone who's Israeli, it, it pains me the most in, in Israel. Monty Friedman, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> thank you for being such a wonderful interviewer.